Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews podcast. The following episode is part of our U.S.-China Horizons series. As bilateral tensions continue to rise, NCUSCR explores key developing areas in which the two countries continue to interact every day. For more videos and podcasts from this series, please visit us at ncuscr.org horizons. In many critical technology industries, the United States and China are locked in an intense competition for economic and innovative primacy. Yet at the same time, the supply chains, talent pools, and financial capital of individuals, corporations, and governments for both countries are deeply entangled in one larger tech ecosystem. Using the semiconductor industry as a case study, we asked NCUSCR director Anya Manuel to shine a light on this web of collaboration and competition and discuss what it could mean for humanity's shared technological future. Anya Manuel is a co-founder and partner in Rice, Hadley, Gates & Manuel, LLC, a strategic consulting firm that helps U.S. companies navigate international markets. She's a former diplomat, author, and advisor on emerging markets. She is the author of the critically acclaimed This Brave New World, India, China, and the United States, published by Simon & Schuster in 2016. A graduate of Harvard Law School and Stanford University, Ms. Manuel now also lectures at Stanford. She currently serves as director on the board of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. We're very excited to have her here with us today. What are China's goals for developing its domestic critical technology industries and how is it achieving these ambitions? China is really ramping up its technology development. And there are four key areas where I would say the competition between China and the US is joined. One of course is semiconductors, the chips that are in your computers, phones, tablets, everything. It's the basic technology that underlies everything else we do in computing. The Chinese have spent hundreds of billions of dollars trying to catch up with where the West is, and they're beginning to do so. They're not quite there. So that's one, semiconductors. Two is artificial intelligence. This is really a baseline technology that's gonna underlie so much of everything else that's happening. And while the best academics in that space are still in the US, Canada, UK, Europe, Israel, um, Japan, the application of AI and certain specific parts of AI, such as drone technology and visual recognition AI are really, really very advanced in China. So I would say in some of those, they're really neck and neck with us. That's number two. Number three, of course, has gotten the most attention and that's 5G and 6G technology. So this is how you're going to be able to use your devices very quickly. It's going to run everything from your mobile phones to the internet of things. So the backbone infrastructure of that is critical. Huawei, of course, is neck and neck with Ericsson and Nokia, the other big competitors, and the Chinese are doing quite, quite well. And finally, and this is one that people don't talk about very much, fintech. You know, the Chinese fintech giants, especially Alipay and Financial, WeChat Pay, are incredibly impressive and especially in the international payment space are much better than anything you see out there in the West. And if we don't watch it carefully, I think this is an area we're gonna, we're gonna wake up in a couple of years and it'll be a 5G moment where we'll say, oh my gosh, all of a sudden we're behind. 
Those are the four big ones I would mention. Of course, there are others, certain aspects of biotechnology, if they bleed into bioweapons in particular, quantum computing, which is further out there. But the Chinese are catching up in all sorts of technical areas. In some cases, that's appropriate. In others, we'll certainly want to stay on our toes. Great. Could you speak to how, how the CCP is trying to promote the development of these industries? What strategies are they using? Um, because this is in the national interest of the country, not just in individual private enterprises' interests. Absolutely. China really has a whole of society approach to all of these technologies. So it's from specific subsidies for companies working in the technologies I mentioned to promoting education. You know, the number of AI programs in China is proliferating far faster than it is in the West to on the military side, a concept they call civ-mil fusion where you have the private sector and the public sector really working hand in hand to promote and develop those technologies. And then finally, to spread them internationally, uh, and this you saw particularly with Huawei, there are subsidies and zero interest loans to help disseminate Chinese technology internationally. So how has the US government and also the private sector in the US responded to this, um, to China's technological rise so far? What has the reaction been in terms of policy? And also um, maybe we can talk about rhetoric a bit too. Great. I think the Trump administration deserves some credit here for raising the alarm at how quickly China is catching up in these key technologies. However, what the Trump administration did was almost entirely defensive. So we tightened our investment screening, making it harder for Chinese companies to invest in our most advanced technology. We put in place very, very tough new export controls, making it harder for American technology to go to China. All of those were necessary, but in some cases it was overreach it wasn't multilateral, for example, in semiconductors, which we talked about in the previous question. You know, we, we put these tough new export controls in place, but we didn't ask our allies to do the same thing. So of course the Chinese just buy them from Korea, Japan, the Netherlands, elsewhere. They don't need to get them from us. So that's one example. And I think now what we should be doing is instead of trying to tear China down, we should be doing more to build ourselves up to build up the US innovation ecosystem. Could you speak more specifically to how the US could build ourselves up and improve our own industries, in particular the semiconductor industry, and to better compete with China? Yeah, there's a lot we can be doing to build ourselves up and we're starting to. And the nice thing is this is one of the few issues in Washington that seem to be fairly bipartisan. So there are a couple of big initiatives out there. The Biden administration really believe in this. You know, they have a new deputy national security advisor for tech, Jason Matheny. They're putting in place a lot of the people who would help us do this. And there are two big bills right now going through the Congress that I think will help a lot. One is the Endless Frontier Act pushed by Chuck Schumer, which is gonna pump as much as $100 billion over I think about 10 years into advanced research and development for some of these key technologies that I talked about. 
that'll be important. Of course, it'll be important then to spend that money well and to use it to leverage more private sector investment so it isn't just wasted, but that's one. Two, the new infrastructure bill, part of the American Jobs Plan, there is a promise for 50 billion to push advanced semiconductor manufacturing. This is really critical. However, semiconductors have so much capital spend that 50 billion, even if the US spends it, and that's a huge amount of money, that is only about four months or so of capital investment by that industry. So once again, just like the Endless Frontier Act, we need to make sure that we can spend that money effectively on the most advanced chip design and manufacturing, and that we use it to leverage appropriately private sector incentives. So we're not just giving that money um, away and it flows down the drain. So the semiconductor industry, I think is a really good example of an industry where the US and China are competing, but at the same time are highly interconnected in terms of markets, supply chains, even the rare earth metals required to to produce chips. Could you talk a little bit about how the U.S. can protect its competitive advantage with China without breaking down the supply chain or essentially cutting itself off from China, which is a huge market for them? Absolutely. Intertwined is exactly the right word. So while many of the most advanced chips are designed in the United States and much of the equipment, the machines that produce semiconductors (laughs) um, come from the United States, our company's biggest customer by far is China. And Chinese chips, a lot of those are actually assembled in China (laughs) into all of the phones and tablets that are currently in all of our pockets. So chips are designed in the United States, often manufactured in Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, then shipped to China and assembled into all of the products that then get shipped all over the world through Foxconn, for Apple, for Samsung, for everyone else. So you are absolutely right to say that this is one international ecosystem. Just breaking it up entirely doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What I do think makes sense, and people are beginning to talk about it in a bipartisan way, is to have very narrowly tailored export controls on the most advanced equipment that would allow the Chinese to make the most advanced chips, especially that goes into military applications. That's one. And to do that, as I said, in answer to a previous question, multilaterally. It can't just be the US. It has to be the same controls on, especially in this space, Japanese, Korean, Dutch, and American technology, because those four countries are currently ahead on that. And then finally, on a lot of other second and third generation stuff to keep cooperating, because it is a good market for all of us, and we shouldn't be 100% decoupled. I've heard, I mean, there are some calls in Congress to try to onshore the production of these chips as a way to decouple from China. So let's not just design the chips, but let's build them too. Um, Could you take us through some of the pros and cons of that idea? Because I feel like that might be 
what somebody who is pro-decoupling might say is, well, let's just re-onshore the production and then we've closed our loop and we're, you know, we're insulated. Could you talk a little bit about that concept and I don't know, pros and cons of that? Sure. So onshoring the production of semiconductor chips, meaning putting the fabs, these huge factories that cost five, 10, sometimes more than that billion dollars a piece to build, I think is appropriate in small select areas. The most advanced new chips and those that are going into our national security, defense and intelligence supply chain. I think anything more than that is gonna be folly because let's start with, we don't even have a workforce right now that is specially trained to work in those giant fabs. Most of those experts are in Taiwan, Korea, Japan. So there would be a huge shortage, something like 200,000 people if you start onshoring fabs. Yeah, you can grow that workforce and that would be a positive thing, but you don't need it. What you want is by and large to keep the international trade system in these products going, but the most advanced important things and those that go into national security, yes, some of those we should be manufacturing here. Switching gears a little bit, obviously China is not deaf to what's going on in Congress. And you know, besides the debates that are currently raging, some reforms have already been made um, with CFIUS, Sperma, um, et cetera. So how has China responded or reacted to America or at least parts of America waking up to their technological rise? What's the strategy that China has been putting together? Yeah, you're seeing a lot of tit for tat here. So from an American perspective, the Chinese started it, if you will, <laughs> by pushing so hard into some of these technologies and as opposed to letting it be an equal playing field and may the best technology win, really pushing in a way that we discussed earlier to make sure they're in the lead on 5G, semiconductors, et cetera. We've talked a lot about the US response. What's China doing now? Doubling down on their strategy. You're talking about dual circulation where there was gonna be one internal market for things. They're moving very rapidly to cut, for example, non-Chinese software out of any systems in China, especially those that touch the government or state-owned enterprises, which of course is a big chunk of the Chinese economy. Uh, it's called the 253 program. That's almost done and implemented. And there's a lot of push to um, be more nationalistic. So I'm always surprised when I go to China how strenuously patriotic and nationalistic the young generation is. Those guys who've just come out of college are going in have really, you know, who have no memory of Tiananmen Square, they really are very pro Xi Jinping and pro the Chinese regime. They're going into Chinese tech companies and they see it as their patriotic duty in some cases to make sure that China remains the tech leader in these things. So this is important. And I just want to emphasize one more thing. Competition is healthy and we should welcome it. Total decoupling is in no one's interest. So I think it behooves both countries to narrowly bound what you were gonna compete in 
and also define some areas where we can continue to cooperate. And I think that is still lacking a little bit. On that note of cooperation or, or maybe, or competition, either one, what is one aspect of the US-China tech relationship today that makes you hopeful or excited about the future? I'm hopeful in two ways. One, if we can narrowly bound our competition and say, okay, it's really just in these few technologies where both sides think they need to be in the lead, that's a positive thing. And there's so many other areas where we can cooperate. For example, clean technologies, solar, um, carbon capture and storage, some many, many parts of artificial intelligence, many parts of biology and biotech. There are so many areas where we should be cooperating and we shouldn't underestimate how much basic science research happens and the best basic science research really happens when you have international teams, often involving American and Chinese researchers. So we should be celebrating that rather than undermining it while being careful about the things that impact our national security. So hopefully one, we can find areas where we can still continue to cooperate. Even if we can't do that, and it's looking pretty dark, pretty bleak these days in the US-China relationship on both sides. I think if we can't do that, this can really spur a new era of um, vast advances in science and technology, kind of like the space age in the 60s and 70s. And that's a positive thing. Healthy competition that spurs both of us and all of our friends and allies to be better at what we're doing can only help the progress of humanity. I like that comparison to the space age because most people are talking about with the trade war, is this the new cold war? But that's an interesting alternative to flipping that perspective. Um, right. Thank you so much for wow. joining and giving your insight on this topic. For more on U.S.-China interaction in key developing sectors, visit us at ncuscr.org slash horizons.